our Bible passage this morning grows out of a story. It's a true story that we can piece together based on information that's given to us in the Bible, based on information that comes from church history, and then based on logical inferences we can draw to connect the dots, inferences that we can draw based on the facts that are available to us. And this true story is a story about a master and a slave in the first century ancient Middle East. And it is a sad fact that slavery existed at every level of society in the ancient world. And there were all kinds of slaves. Some people were pressed into slavery as punishment for their crimes. Some people were indentured servants who were paying off debts. And there were some slaves who even were high-ranking members of households and even of governments. And yet, regardless of their station in life, all such people were slaves. Which means they were owned as property by another human being. And we think of that and we naturally find it appalling. It is abhorrent. It's horrible. And yet, to the people in the first century, it was just a normal part of life. Unless, of course, you happened to be a slave. And then you desperately, desperately hoped for some kind of change in your circumstances. And that's the case with our story. The story of a master named Philemon and a household slave named Onesimus. Now, in their particular case, Philemon is not a harsh man. He is not a harsh and abusive master. And in fact, something dramatic has happened in his life because Philemon has heard for the first time about Jesus and he has become a follower of Christ. And Onesimus gets to see Philemon start to change. In fact, the church in the city of Colossae actually meets in Philemon's home. And so Onesimus gets to see lots of these new Christians. And he sees the way that they interact and the way that faith is beginning to change them. And yet, even if Philemon and the other Christians treat Onesimus kindly... He doesn't want to be somebody's property. So one day, he decides that he's had enough. He decides to run away. He knows where Philemon keeps his stash, and so before he leaves, he steals some money, and then he heads out on the road. Philemon is angry. He's angry and he's full of shame. He's lost money. He's lost a valuable slave. And that slave has made him look like a fool. And Onesimus, on the other hand, is both happy and scared. He's happy to be free, but he's scared because... 
says he is guilty of two capital crimes, desertion and theft. If he is recaptured, at best, he will face severe punishment. He even could face execution. The the key is this. If he's recaught, how will Philemon respond? It all depends on whether or not Philemon will react harshly if Onesimus is recaptured. So the safest course for Onesimus is to lose himself in the crowd of a big city, and he decides to head to Rome more than 1,000 miles away. And I can't even begin to imagine how he navigates that journey, somehow avoiding detection and capture along the way. He likely burned through a lot of his, his cash just getting there. But somehow, some way, Onesimus makes it safely to Rome. And it's there in Rome that this story takes a fascinating turn. Because the Apostle Paul is there. He's living in Rome under house arrest. Onesimus must have heard about Paul from Philemon and the other believers in Colossae. And so when he runs out of money and has nowhere else to go, he shows up at Paul's home. And Paul welcomes him. He welcomes a runaway slave. Now, this places Paul at tremendous risk. He's already in chains for preaching the gospel, and now he can be accused of of harboring a fugitive. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care because he serves a higher law. He is a citizen of a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so he doesn't turn Onesimus in, he takes him in. And he shares the message of Jesus with him. Onesimus, a slave, has very little experience of what it means to be loved. And Paul is able to help this man understand that he is loved by Jesus. And so Onesimus decides to become a follower of Christ. And Paul continues to disciple him and teach him and train him. And over time, Paul even empowers Onesimus to help carry out parts of the ministry. So Onesimus is working alongside Paul. He's being discipled. He's growing in his faith. And and as he becomes increasingly spiritually mature, he starts to get convicted about what he's done to his master. He realizes that he's in a broken relationship. He's betrayed his master, and that master also now is his brother in Christ. And so Onesimus decides to return to Colossae. He wants to go back to Colossae to try to make things right, and yet there is huge risk in that decision because he has no idea how Philemon will respond. 
And the risk is that Philemon will assert his legal rights, that he will insist Onesimus be punished, and may even become a harsh, harsh master as a way to retaliate. And Paul is watching and observing this. And he decides to step in and help. He decides to write a letter to Philemon. A letter that will encourage him to look at that situation from a completely different perspective. And rather than view Onesimus as a runaway slave, Paul wants Philemon to view Onesimus as a brother in God's family. And so Onesimus is going to head back home with a letter from Paul to Philemon. And now as we consider the dynamics of this master-slave relationship, it's, it's almost, it's so hard for us to understand. And we never can forget that these men lived in a very, very different world than ours. And we need, to, we need to wrestle with our own country's checkered history in this regard. And think about what we faced. We live in a democratic republic where we, the people, have a say. And we actually can express our desires and we can vote and we can try and help change things from bad to better to good to best. And even in this nation, it took a horrible bloody civil war to eradicate slavery. And Rome did not have the advantages that we have. They didn't have the kind of democratic processes that we take for granted. They couldn't vote to get rid of slavery. It wasn't going to go away due to protests. It was deeply embedded in the fabric of their society and it was viewed as normal. And we might say horribly, tragically normal. And that simply was a stark reality. And that reality shaped what the early church leaders could do and how they could address issues. And so for them, the question was not, how can we eradicate slavery? The question was this. In a system where slavery is a tragic fact of life, how do we live as God's people? And that question directly applies to the situation that Paul now faces with Onesimus and Philemon. A relationship of a master and a slave, both of whom are fairly new followers of Jesus. And Paul's desire is for them to be reconciled so that their relationship will be transformed. And through this letter that we are going to explore, we're going to see Paul play the role of a mediator. And he will provide a marvelous example of how broken relationships can be repaired. Now our circumstances are very, very different than the circumstances of Philemon and Onesimus. But there's much that we can learn from Paul because the principles of rec re reconciliation are timeless and can apply to all circumstances. And we all know what it's like to be in broken relationships. 
And so whether it's our own broken relationship that needs the touch of God, or whether it's the broken relationship of someone within our circle of influence, a family member, a friend, somebody that we want to help, what we will see in this letter is that the Apostle Paul points the way forward. He shows us how following Jesus can lead God's people to amazing reconciliation. Let's look at the letter to Philemon, starting in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. When we want to repair a broken relationship, the first and most important thing we must do is establish the correct priority. As followers of Jesus, we must be committed to doing what is best for the kingdom of God rather than simply what is best for ourselves. And in the kingdom of God, the goal cannot be winning. The goal must be reconciliation. To achieve that goal, we have to make the choice to be kingdom-minded rather than me-minded. And that's what Paul models here with his very first words. This is a personal letter to Philemon, but he also addresses it to his wife and to his son and to the Colossian church that meets in his home. Why is Paul doing that? He's including these other people to remind Philemon that whatever he does is going to impact and reflect upon all of God's family. It's a reminder that he's part of God's kingdom. And he also tells Philemon that he's thankful for him. Consider how we respond when relationships are broken. We usually focus almost exclusively on what's wrong, what's not working. And Paul starts the conversation by focusing on what is right. And a huge part of what is right in the life of Philemon is that he loves God's people. He understands that he's part of a community of faith. And Paul is going to build on that foundation to let him know that he needs to look at Onesimus differently. Because Onesimus, too, is part of God's family. So the process of reconciliation begins by shifting our focus away from ourselves and making the choice to be kingdom-minded. That's what Paul models here. He's setting the stage so that Philemon can be more kingdom-minded and less me-minded. And then Paul moves into the heart of the issue and he demonstrates the importance of 
urging people to do the right thing rather than making demands. Let's look at verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Reconciliation is based on forgiveness. And forgiveness is something we offer. We can't demand that other people forgive. Paul understands that he could use his authority as an apostle to give Philemon some kind of command, but he understands that that would not accomplish the goal of reconciliation. When we make demands, people may comply, but that compliance is only outward. Those of us who are parents make that mistake with our kids all the time. Our kids mess up and they're in a conflict and we exercise our parental authority and we say, you apologize to each other right now. And yet, unless we take some time to teach and explain, our kids may comply, but there won't be any heartfelt change. It will not be reconciliation. And that's why Paul's appeal here is not based on authority, but based on love. The love of Jesus that all of these men, Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, all of them have experienced that love, and they now have the opportunity to express that love in their relationship with one another. And it is because of the love of Jesus That when Paul looks at Onesimus, he does not see a runaway slave. He does not see a fugitive from the law. He does not see a thief. He sees a man that he calls my son. My son. What a term of intimacy and endearment. And Paul's modeling something here. He wants Philemon to do the same thing. He wants Philemon to look at Onesimus through the eyes of Jesus and see him differently. And he drives home this point in verse 11 by making an intricate pun which is based on the name Onesimus. Onesimus literally means useful. And in the original Greek text of the Bible, useful and useless are similar forms of a Greek word Krestos. Now, Krestos is virtually identical to the Greek word Christos, which means Christ. So when we unpack this pun, we realize that Paul is saying that Onesimus was useless apart from Christ. And now he's extremely useful because he's in Christ. 
from a kingdom perspective, Onesimus was useless as a slave, but now he's useful because he's a child of God. He now can fulfill the purposes for which God created him. That is true for all of us. When people become connected to Jesus Christ, we lay aside our uselessness and we become useful because we can fulfill our God-given potential and be the men and women that God has that God desires us to be. All of this is a heartfelt plea from Paul to Philemon, urging him to not do what he legally is entitled to do, to not treat this broken relationship as a matter of law and rights and restitution. It's a plea to respond as a follower of Jesus. That's what Paul wants to see. So he doesn't demand, he urges and he pleads and he continues in that vein in the next section of the letter. Let's continue on in verse 12. Paul writes, I am sending him who is my very heart. What a, what a potent phrase, he's my very heart and I'm sending him back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that you could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do <clears throat> would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Paul is communicating here that Onesimus has great value. Paul values Onesimus so much that he's, he's willing to keep him there in Rome. And in verse 16, there's, a, there's an implication, there's a nudge highlighting the fact that perhaps Philemon should consider setting Onesimus free. But whatever is decided, Paul wants Philemon to see the incredible value that Onesimus has, not the economic value of a slave, but the kingdom value of a fellow human being made in the image of God and now a brother in Christ. And Paul even wonders, maybe God orchestrated these events. It's interesting to think about. There are times when Stuff happens that we don't like. And I think Paul's saying here, those are great moments to step back, to take stock and evaluate and say, what, what is it that God might be up to in this moment? In other words, we need to evaluate even circumstances that we may hate from a kingdom perspective. I've had all kinds of experiences like that in my life. I think about the time when I got fired from a job because God was trying to get my attention. He wanted to move me out of the marketplace and in the ministry, and I wasn't listening. So he had to do something dramatic to get my attention. I didn't like it. 
but it worked out for the best. And see, often that is what happens. God is moving in our lives and in circumstances, causing things to happen which we don't like, but which can turn out for the best. Philemon doesn't like what's happened to him. And Paul's saying, Philemon, I know you're not happy, but maybe God's got something better in store. Maybe Philemon, he did this to shake things up, to bring about some vital changes in you, to bring about some eternal changes in Onesimus, and to dramatically change the nature of your relationship. And all of these comments are designed to make Philemon think, to prod his conscience, to urge him to do what is spiritually right and morally right rather than what is legally right. And you know what? Urging and pleading and teaching takes a lot out of you. It takes a lot of time and effort. And I have no doubts that Paul spent a long time agonizing in prayer over this letter, asking God for wisdom to say the right words in the right way that would unlock Philemon's heart. And because it's hard work, We often resist doing it. So we choose the easy path. The path of making demands. And we quickly, easily bark out a demand and move on. It's not the right approach. Paul's approach is the right one because making demands never produces lasting results. And Paul wants us to see that bringing about reconciliation is worth the price. It is worth the investment. It is worth the cost of our time and our energy and our effort and our prayers. And in fact, as Paul is going to demonstrate next, there's times when it's even worth a financial cost. Let's continue on in verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And listen to verse 18. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. That's Paul's way of saying, remember, if it wasn't for my ministry, you wouldn't even be a Christian in the first place. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Consider what Jesus did on the cross. He stood in the gap for us. He took on our spiritual debt and paid the price for us. He died in our place. And that's the example Paul is now following. He's saying, I'm willing to stand in the gap and pay Onesimus' financial debt. And I find it interesting, he says, if Onesimus owes you anything. He knows that he does. But by saying if, it creates an opportunity for Philemon to voluntarily wipe the slate clean. He could say, no, no, no. Onesimus doesn't owe me a thing. Now, Paul knows that the debt does exist. 
And ideally, it would be great if Philemon himself would pay it and make restitution. But, but where is he going to get the money? He has no job. And here's Paul's view. If this issue of debt over the stolen funds will interfere with reconciliation, then Paul wants to remove that as an issue. He says, let's clear that obstacle out of the way so the two of you can be healed in your relationship. And Paul feels so strongly about this that as we read here in our text, he takes the pen away from the scribe and he writes all this down by himself to drive home the point that this is a personal offer. And I think this is such a powerful example because sometimes to help other people repair a broken relationship, one of the greatest gifts we can offer is to stand in the gap and remove something that is an obstacle to reconciliation. And it's fascinating to me how often that obstacle is money. In my last church, our leadership team once was asked to help resolve a dispute at a neighboring church involving the pastor and the elders of that congregation. So three of us, myself and two of our elders, went over to meet with their leadership team to see what we could do. Now, the leaders of that church had been in a deteriorating relationship for some time. And there were several issues between them, but, but as we talked, it appeared that most of them could be resolved through some honest, open, heartfelt discussion. However, there was one sticking point, and it involved some ministry expenses that the pastor had incurred. And he felt that they were legitimate and the church should pay them, and the elders said, no, these are not legitimate expenses for the church. Now, this was a very small church. Money was tight. And neither the church nor the pastor were in a position to easily pay these bills, which totaled several hundred dollars. And so both sides dug in their heels and insisted that the other side pay. I'm not responsible. You are. It was clear to us that mistakes had been made on both sides. What was even more clear was that this was a barrier to reconciliation. And one of our elders said, I'm going to stand in the gap. He says, hand me the bills. I'll pay them. It's obvious that this is a deep dividing issue. And if one of you pays them, it's going to leave lingering hurt and resentment because of how much this costs. I will pay it and wipe the slate clean because we want you to be reconciled. I have seldom been more amazed and humbled in my life. You see, in that moment, that elder wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking about his own financial loss. He was being kingdom-minded, and he was thinking about this example that the Apostle Paul models for us here in verse 18. He was generous and sacrificial, and he paved the way for these church leaders to be reconciled. And then I was amazed again because after a lengthy silence, the leaders of that other church looked at each other and they refused this gift. 
As they continued to talk, it became sadly apparent that each of them was more committed to being right than to being reconciled. Each side wanted to win the argument and impose their will on the other side, and therefore they would not let a brother in Christ stand in the gap for them because winning was more important than repairing the broken relationship. And we left that meeting heartbroken because we knew these men could not fix that broken relationship until there was a profound change of heart. And sadly, yet not surprisingly, in less than a year, that became a badly, tragically broken church as they went through a horrible, ugly church split. Refusing to be reconciled can be incredibly costly. And Paul understands that. And that's why he's willing to put himself on the line and to stand in the gap. And what he shows us here is that standing in the gap for other followers of Jesus can be a marvelous way to promote reconciliation if the other parties want to be reconciled. But standing in the gap is a risk worth taking to help repair broken relationships. It makes a bold statement that reconciliation is a worthwhile investment for a follower of Jesus. It's worth it for us to invest our time, our energy, our effort, our prayers, and even our own personal money. Because reconciliation is close to the heart of God. So Paul now has made his case. He's laid out his plea. And as he moves into the closing part of this letter, he's going to let Philemon know that there's one more important factor that helps promote reconciliation. And it's hope. It's hope. Whenever we're desiring to be reconciled, we must hold on to hope. We see that here in verse 21 when Paul says, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do more than I ask. Oh, that is a statement of hope. And it continues on into the final comments of this letter. Look at verse 22. And one more thing, prepare a a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayer. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greeting, and so do Mark and Aristarchus and Damos and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Any discussion of reconciliation should end on a note of hope. And we can express that hope in all kinds of ways. Paul expressed it very directly when he said to to Philemon there in verse 21, I'm confident that you'll do even more than I ask. And here he expresses hope in another way, saying, I hope to be freed from prison so I can come visit you. That's a statement of some some love and some accountability. Because what he's saying is, I hope to get there, and I hope that when I arrive, I'm going to see a transformed relationship between you, Philemon, and Onesimus. Paul is tremendously hopeful that these words over which he's prayed and agonized will bear fruit and make a difference. And we know what broken relationships are like. Reconciliation sometimes is not easy. In fact, sometimes it is incredibly hard because talking about it forces us to deal with painful and emotional issues. 
And we will never find our way forward unless we hold on to hope. And Paul closes with some personal greetings from other believers to once again remind Philemon that his actions do not exist in a vacuum. His decisions will greatly, <coughs> excuse me, greatly affect Onesimus, but his decisions also will reflect on the church of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to Philemon to be kingdom-minded as he prays about this issue and considers what he will do. So how did this story turn out? Did Paul's hopes come true? Was he successful in his efforts to help these two brothers in Christ be reconciled? Yes and no. On a personal level, his hope for freedom never came to pass. But in terms of this relationship, Philemon did in fact exceed his expectations. They were reconciled in ways far beyond what Paul ever could even think about or imagine. And Onesimus returned to Philemon and they were in fact reconciled, but not as master and slave, as brothers in Christ. And as a result, it wasn't long before Philemon gave Onesimus his freedom. And Onesimus then chose to return to Rome and to assist Paul during his imprisonment. And Paul continued to invest in Onesimus, to disciple him and mentor him, to rely on him as a trusted aide, and to rely on him as a valued co-worker in the ministry of sharing the message of Jesus Christ. Philemon and Onesimus set their minds and their hearts on Jesus. And so they were transformed and their relationship was transformed. Reconciliation through Jesus changes us because it changes our relationships. And Paul's example in this letter reminds us that reconciliation always is possible when we embrace the principles that he identifies for us here. To be kingdom-minded, to not make demands, to stand in the gap for others when necessary, and to embrace and express That is a pattern given to us by God that can repair horribly damaged relationships. And this advice from Paul can help us in two distinct ways. There's people that we know, people within our sphere of influence, family members and friends who are in broken relationships. We've got some tools here that God's given us that we can use to help them along. The question is this, do we love them enough to come alongside them and to nudge them toward reconciliation as Paul does in this letter. And we also all know what it's like to be in a broken relationship of our own. And this advice is given by God for us to use. And here's the question. When we're in a broken relationship, can we let go of our hurt? Can we let go of our pride? Can we let go of our need to win? And let Jesus bring about reconciliation. Reconciliation is so close to the heart of God. 
And if we want to see Jesus at work in our lives, then we simply need to commit ourselves to the process of reconciliation and watch what Jesus will do to bring healing and wholeness and restoration.